Well, it is wedding season at First Baptist Church of Irving. Because DBU has finished up their school year, that means a lot of people are getting married. A lot of young 20-somethings getting hitched. I'm grateful that this year I get to be a part of a lot of them. And as I've spoken with these couples in premarital counseling, it has brought me back to the preparation time for Jordan and I's marriage. It's consuming, isn't it? Preparing for a wedding. It is a consuming thing. It is a big deal to plan a wedding. Why? Because your wedding day is a big day. So it's a big deal to plan for your wedding day because it is itself a big day. There aren't many bigger days in the course of your life when you think about it. So you want everything to be right. You want to have the right venue. You gotta have the right flowers. You have to have the right dress, right? You gotta say yes to that dress. You gotta have the right guest list. You have to send the save the dates. And then you have to send separate invitations, apparently, these days. You have to have all the pictures done, the premarital pictures, the engagement pictures, and then the right photographer for the day of. You gotta do all that premarital counseling. And that's just a short list of the number of things that you have to go through to prepare in the right way for this great wedding day. Your engagement is completely consumed with preparation for a big day. It's a big deal. So you prepare for this big day. The reality of that future day, the reality of that that wedding day that you know is coming shapes every action and it guides every moment until that day comes. And we know this, that your wedding day is not the only day that functions in this way. It's not the only future day that can affect you like this. There are days in our future that are meant to affect our present. Think about it. Graduation, right? We're in that season as well. If you want to graduate, if you want to get to that future day, there are a number, of thing, a number of things that you have to do before that graduation day in order to graduate. You've got to have the right credits. You've got to take the right classes. The birth of a child. When you find out that you're pregnant, you're expecting, there's a whole bunch of things that you have to do to get ready as much as you can for when that baby comes on the scene. The launch of a business, right? There are things that you have to do to prepare for the launch date of your new business. But what I want us to consider this morning as the church is that from a Christian perspective, there are no more important days. There's not a more important future day that is meant to affect us like the return of Christ. There's no future day that we need to prepare for more than the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus Christ returns for his bride. This is a future day unlike any other future day. And it requires a different level of preparation. It requires a different level of attention that should consume every day of our lives until he returns. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3 this morning, is encouraging the church to live with this day, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ in mind. 
because the return of Christ should affect everything we do until he comes. We, as the church, have a lot of planning to do. We have a lot of work to do to get ready for our groom to come get his bride. Essentially, as the church, we should see ourselves living in a long engagement, waiting for our groom to come and take us home. Here's our main point this morning from 2 Peter chapter 3. The reality of the future day of the Lord should affect every other day until he comes. So I want you to think this morning as we read this text, as we walk through the sermon, does your life look like you are preparing for the return of Christ? Does our church look like we are preparing for the return of Christ. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to read to verse 13. Here's what the Word of God says. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. And we don't know specifically which letter he's referencing. It could be 1 Peter, but it's likely he wrote a number of letters. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and, th and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with the roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn? But according to this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter is saying that the people of God are being stirred up in two different ways. On the one hand, you have this apostle, an apostle who has authority given directly from Christ himself, challenging the church, challenging the church to live a, a life of godliness, of righteousness. And on the other hand, you have scoffers, false teachers who are scoffing, challenging the church to live lives of selfishness, to live lives of godlessness, pursuing earthly pleasure above everything else. And each of them 
are rooting their challenges in a conviction about what's going to happen in the end. What's going to happen regarding the return of Christ. What we have here, Peter is outlining, are two competing eschatologies. Two ideas or beliefs about what's going to happen in the end. That's what eschatology means. Eschatology is belief about the last things. So two competing eschatologies that are driving these teachers' convictions about how you live today. Let's look at them. On the one hand, we have the belief of Peter. And Peter says, my belief about what's going to happen in the end comes from the prophets and Christ himself. Verses 1 and 2. Now the second letter I'm writing you, and both of them stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions, what's going to happen in the future, from the holy prophets. The holy prophets in the Old Testament and the commandment of Jesus himself that he has given through your apostles. And I'm one of those apostles. I'm standing on the foundation of God's revealed and inspired word that he has given down through the history of his covenant relationship with his people. I'm basing my conviction about what I believe is going to happen at the end on what God has already revealed. The day of the Lord is coming, verse 10. It's coming because God said it was. Now, what is the day of the Lord? Let's, let's make sure we understand what it is that Peter is referencing here and what he is looking forward to and his convictions that is driving him and his behavior and his obedience, and calling the church to be mindful of, to guide the way they are living right now. Well, the day of the Lord is a day that is referenced throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's really heavy in the minor prophets. You see the, the day of the Lord talked about a lot in Joel and Amos. In fact, Joel is quoted again by Peter in Acts chapter 2. Verse 20, where Peter talks about the day of the Lord. First Thessalonians talks about the day of the Lord as well. And of course, Second Peter. And in the context of the New Testament, the day of the Lord is both a day of hope and a day of despair. It's a day of salvation and a day of judgment. When Christ will return to finish what he began in his first coming. For those who are in Christ, it will be a day of blessing when our hope is fully realized. All the suffering we've experienced, all the effects of the brokenness of this world, every promise that we have been longing for will be fully and completely revealed in the return of our coming King. Your groom will come to take you home. It will be a day of blessing for those who are in Christ. But it will also be a day of judgment because the sheep will be separated from the goats on this day, according to Matthew chapter 25. The wheat will be separated from the chaff, Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. The unrepentant will be clearly designated from the repentant. There are only two options when Christ returns, under which you can be found. Two designations, two categories. You're either going to be in Christ or you're going to be outside of Christ. That's it. 
And if you are in Christ, it's going to be a day of incredible joy, incredible blessing as our hope is realized. But if you are outside of Christ, it will be a day of judgment in which you are judged for your rebellion against God, and you will be cast into a place of eternal torment called hell. In terms of creation, everything touched by sin and not covered by the blood of Christ will be purified by fire and be wiped away, destroyed, preparing, according to verse 13 of our passage, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. Christ will make all things new. Revelation 21.5, upholding his character and displaying his glory. It's going to be a stunning day. For those of us who are in Christ, we long for it because of the hope it presents for us. But for those outside of Christ, it will be a day of incredible, incredible despair. And Peter says, as the bride of Christ, we should be preparing for this day, this day of unveiling when our Jesus will return. You should be preparing as a bride prepares to meet her groom. Living with the end in mind. Making sure that you are striving to be as pure and as godly as you can be. To be worthy as much as it is within your power. Worthy of meeting this incredible Jesus who has loved you so incredibly. You are to anticipate the return of Christ and let your days until he returns be guided by the reality that he is coming again. You recognize the promise and the blessing that awaits you. And you remember that the promise and the blessing that awaits you is better than any false promise, any false blessing that could be thrown at you here and make you unworthy of your groom who is coming to take you home. And remember, this day is not a potential day. All the things we talked about earlier are potentials. It's not certain that a marriage will happen, right? Things can change. It's not certain that graduation will happen. It's not certain that your business will launch. There's still, however minuscule, a possibility that it will not happen. Friends, there's no possibility, no chance that this will not happen. It is decreed before the foundations of the earth that this will occur. And if you prepare for those things that are possibilities, well, you better prepare for these things that are certain. For this day, that is certain. Because the consequences are eternal. That's Peter's view. There's also another, right? Competing eschatologies. You have the belief of Peter, but on the other hand, you have the belief of these scoffers that we see in verses 3 and 4. Scoffers will come, and they will do what scoffers do. They will scoff, following their own sinful desires. They will say this, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These scoffers don't believe that Christ is going to return at all. That there is no day of the Lord that has judgment attached to it. They reject the idea and they treat it with contempt. That's what makes them scoffing, scoffers. They are treating truth, the truth of God's word, with contempt. 
Where is the actual evidence of this day, they ask in verse 4. It seems like ever since Jesus left, the world has been trucking along just like it did before he came. There hasn't been any major change since the work of Jesus. And the world is just continuing to work as it did before. And there won't be. People are still dying. Creation looks exactly the same as it did. God's not going to intervene and judge. You're fine. Just live to the fullest pleasure that you can find in this world because we don't know what's going to happen. You might as well have as much pleasure as you can find. There's no certainty about the future. We don't know what's going to happen. So just live your best life today. And Peter says that the belief of these scoffers is deeply flawed. Clearly, unlike his belief, theirs is not based in the prophetic word. It's clearly a devised myth conjured up by the will of man. And if you remember at the end of chapter 1, that's the very thing that we don't want to root our faith in. We want to root our faith in something that was given by God that is too incredible for man to conceive on his own. And they ask for evidence? Well, look at verses 5 to 9. Where's the evidence for this day? They deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You do not overlook this fact, beloved. One day is as a thousand years. Thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some would count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Here is what they forget. Where's the evidence? You forget, scoffers, that God has destroyed the earth before and allowed it to be reborn with water. He did that with Noah. Has God ever judged the earth because of its wickedness? Has he ever acted in this way before? Yes. Noah, also Sodom and Gomorrah. They forget that the work of God foreshadowed in Sodom and Gomorrah is a work that will be revisited again upon all the earth that is not covered by the blood of Christ. Even though God promised he would never again destroy the world by water, he did not make that promise with fire. It will be cleansed because of its sinfulness one day. And finally, they make the mistake, or they mistake God's, uh, God's patience for indifference. They mistake God's patience for indifference. Let's dwell on that point for a moment. How many times have we taken advantage of God's grace. These scoffers are using the patience of God as an excuse to indulge in the pleasures of the flesh. If God was really going to judge us, he would have already done it. And since he's not going to judge us, he hasn't done it already, there's probably no judgment coming. I don't even know how much God knows what's going on down here. So just go do whatever you want and don't worry about it. And Peter says God's timing is different than your timing. It's different. He is withholding judgment. Listen, not because he does not care, 
but precisely because he cares. He's withholding his judgment as an act of grace, as an act of mercy to allow as many people as possible to hear and respond to the gospel because he does not desire that any should perish. He wants as many people as possible to come under the covering, the protection of the blood of Christ. And Peter says, friends, this is not a time for indulgence. It's a time for evangelism. It's not a time for you to to pursue your your worldly pleasures. It's a time to, to rejoice in the graciousness of God that he would withhold his wrath and go out and tell as many people as possible about the certain future that is coming and call them to come under the provision that God has made for them in Jesus Christ. These scoffers are saying that you should pursue godlessness, but I'm saying that you should pursue godliness, verses 11 to 13. These things are going to be dissolved. So what sort of people ought you to be? You should be ones of holiness, godliness, waiting for, hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. You should be waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Listen, Proverbs 19.29 says this, judgment, condemnation awaits scoffers. Don't be a scoffer. Don't hold with contempt the truth of God's word. You live your life. You orchestrate your life around the certainty of his promises. Do the work of supplementing, as we saw in 2 Peter 1, to get ready for when Christ returns. Don't be infatuated with this world. It's passing away. All these things that the scoffers are telling you to pursue, to go after, they're going to be dissolved. Gone. Gone. And the blink of an eye, under the judgment of Christ. Why would you love something? Why would you give your life to pursuing something that will not last for eternity? That will be taken away in a moment of judgment. Why not give your life to something that's eternal? That you will be able to enjoy for all of eternity. Jesus is coming. Church, you need to get ready. Get ready and live your life with that truth, that reality in mind. You are the bride of Christ, Revelation 21, 9. Are you ready to meet your groom? That was Peter's challenge to the church then. How does that challenge affect us today? How can we respond to this this challenge for Peter to be aware and, and orchestrate our lives around the certainty that Christ is coming again. A day of hope for those who are in Christ and a day of judgment for those who are outside of Christ. Well, friends, we need to be preparing. In the same way that the early church then needed to be preparing for the day of the Lord, we need to be preparing now. We are living in the last days. That is the term to describe in the New Testament the time after the resurrection of Christ. We are living in the last days. He could come at any moment, like a thief in the night. Are we preparing? Are we ready for Jesus to come back? We prepare in two ways. 
reflective of the two realities of the day of the Lord. They have hope and a day of judgment. We set our hope on Christ. That's the first way that we prepare for this day. And we work within God's timing until he returns. It's the second way we prepare. Let's, let's break those down a little bit, okay? How should we respond? Firstly, we must set our hope on Christ. We must set our affections on our groom, right? It's like when you get married. It doesn't mean that there won't be temptations that come along the way to look at another female or look at another male. But in marriage, what you said is this, I'm choosing my wife above anything else. I'm choosing my husband above anything else. When those temptations come, I'm gonna remember my covenant, I'm gonna remember my promise, and I'm not gonna look at those people anymore. I'm focusing on the promise that I made, my spouse. And the same thing is true with the church. We have to set our hope, our affection on Christ. And when temptations come, we have to remember our commitment. We are not going to look at any other false savior. We're not going to look at any other false promise. We're going to set our hope on Christ. The scoffers want the church to reject the promise of Jesus. They are so enamored with the present. They are so in love with the present that they give no consideration to the future. In fact, they reject it. But remember, church, we have a future-oriented faith. A future-oriented faith. Yes, it is true that some of the promises of God we are able to experience right now. We get tastes of what God has promised us right now. But we also remember and admit and believe that not everything that God has promised we will experience in its fullness until he returns. The taste that we experience now, these foretastes are meant to remind us of what we are truly longing for and one day we'll receive in their entirety. We have to have a commitment to this truth there's no pleasure in this world that is greater than the pleasure that we find in Christ. There's none. There's no joy in this world that compares to the joy that we have in Christ. This is a central belief to our faith. And the question that we have to wrestle with as the church is, do we believe this really? Right In the church, in a pew on a Sunday morning, everybody in this room, I hope, would say, of course I believe that. But do you really? Have you really set your hope only on Christ? Let me ask you some questions. Do you believe that the riches of Christ are truly better than earthly riches? Do you believe that? Do you believe that the security of our salvation in Christ is better than any earthly security that we can find? Do you believe that the love that we have experienced in Christ is better than any love that we can find on this earth? Such that you would be willing to sacrifice any of those things if God called you to for his glory. If not, you don't really believe it. God, do you want me to give up my job? Because it's prohibiting me from being obedient to your calling? Where am I going to get my money? I don't have enough money to do that. What do you trust? Where's, where's your true faith 
I'm not saying be irresponsible. I'm saying being obedient, right? God, I, I got to get out of this relationship in order to be faithful to you. It's not honoring to you for me to be in this relationship. Where am I going to find love? I'm going to be lonely my whole life. What do you believe? What do you truly believe in that moment? Listen to this question. Are you comforted more by the gospel than you are by the stuff in your house? When times are difficult, what or who do you turn to? When you have seasons of despair, these valley moments, what's your immediate impulse? Do you go to food? Do you go get that pint of ice cream? right? Start eating away your feelings. Do you turn to clothes? Because you go to think, uh, you know, uh, shopping therapy, right? Credit card therapy is going to help you in that moment. Addiction. Addiction. Maybe you turn to nicotine. Maybe you turn to alcohol. Maybe you turn to pornography. Maybe you turn to, to more dangerous drugs. What is it that you turn to? What do you rely on? What consoles you truly in moments of despair? In a moment of difficulty, do you rely upon your intellect? Do you rely upon your parents or your children? Or do you pray? Do you get on your knees? Do you ask for God's help first to change your heart, to see the situation differently? Have you set your hope entirely on Christ? Because I think if we're being honest, and I include myself in this, okay? I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you here. We live a lot more for the present than we would like to admit. It's difficult to, to constantly think about the future and, and the reality of Christ's coming to, to affect every single moment of every day. That's hard work. And I think far too often as believers, we get caught up in the present and we become enamored with the now in such a way that it affects our ability to be obedient. Think about the way we, send, we spend money. I can't give to the budget or missions or to my brother or sister who is in need because I need coffee right now. Isn't that crazy how much money we spend on coffee? I need, co I need, the, I need the most expensive coffee possible in order to survive. No, you don't. I need that car. I need that house. I need that degree. I need that shirt, those shoes. I need that vacation to the point where I'm, I'm going to max my credit cards. I'm going to drain my bank account and not ever be obedient to God's calling to give back a portion of what is his for the ministry of the gospel. Why? Because I'm living for the now. I'm living for what I can enjoy right now. Now, hear me. None of those things are bad in and of themselves, right? We should enjoy the fruit of our labor. We should enjoy the things of God that he has given us to enjoy in this world. But here's what happens. Enjoyment, comfort, entertainment become the prime things that we pursue above everything else. In fact, if you could describe American culture right now besides ugly divided, wouldn't you say that the things that we pursue as Americans are pleasure, comfort, 
and entertainment. When you say those three things are kind of the, the big ticket items that we are pursuing right now, well, what happens when we give our lives to those things, even as believers? What happens when we give our lives to those things, even as Christians? Listen, the joy that we experience in this world, the, the comfort, the pleasure, the entertainment that we experience in this world, it necessarily diminishes. It will never last. Whatever you experience on this planet in terms of comfort, joy, entertainment, it will necessarily diminish. You want to know why? Because God designed it that way. Because he doesn't want you to find your true joy, your true comfort, or your true pleasure in this world. He wants you to taste it and then to point it back to him where those things are found in their fullness. Engagement, enjoyment, entertainment, comfort are not meant to be the ends of our lives as they can be found in this world because true joy is only found in Christ. I need you to believe that today. True joy is only found in Christ. He alone is captivating in the sense that our eyes can be on him for eternity and never lose interest. He is our source of comfort because in him we have true eternal security and peace with God and with each other. There's nothing that will fade about any pleasure that we find in Christ. A couple weeks ago, I got to go see the new Avengers movie. In game. I was really excited about it because I was on board from the first Iron Man, and this has been like a 10 year deal with Marvel Studios where they have unfolded character after character after character, box office smash after box office smash, all leading up to this climactic movie that the world had been anticipating. And it set all kinds of records. Billions, billions, and billions of dollars this movie will make. It's crazy how on the first weekend, it jumped into the top three grossing films of all time. Isn't that insane? And do you know what I think about it two weeks after or three weeks after I saw it? It was a great movie. Okay, great. When's the next one coming out? Isn't that crazy? Uh, months of advertisement, years decade of planning and literally the next day after I saw it I was on to something else friends every single pleasure you find in this life is exactly the same way none of it will last it will all dissolve so we set our hope in Christ and Peter's point to the church is that the setting our hope in Christ peace requires commitment on your part. It requires work, spiritually empowered work, yes, but work nonetheless. It is natural to live for today. It is supernatural to live with the day of the Lord in mind. It is natural to want what's right in front of you. It is supernatural to remember that God has something better for you. And you have to discipline yourself to remember that this is not what I'm living for. That is what I'm living for. Pursue 
godliness. Live set apart. Supplement your faith with that list in 2 Peter chapter 1 to prepare yourself to live for the day of the Lord. We need our minds renewed constantly by the truth of the gospel so that when we have a temptation in a moment to turn to something that is not Christ, we can say to ourselves, that is a lie from the enemy. Scripture says, this is not what I need. I need him above everything else. And when something's taken from me, my identity is not in that. My hope is not in that. My hope is in Jesus. And I'm going to live with that truth in mind. We need to live in godly community that challenges us to remember the things of God. Not community that embraces the same pursuits of this world. May the church, may we as a church, never prioritize joy and commitment and entertainment as the world describes them as our priority. That can lead to all kinds of divisions, can steal our witness. May we be committed to finding those things ultimately in Christ, and may we push each other as a community to remember that that is our true goal. We are empowered by the Spirit to situate our lives in such a way that we can know God and love Him. Not just know about Him, know Him and love Him and see that He is good. We gotta set our hope on Jesus so that we see His return as a day of blessing. I think about how many Christians don't see the day of the Lord as a, re, as a blessing. The return of Christ is a blessing because all they think about is all the stuff they're going to lose. All the things they didn't get to do. Is your hope on Christ? Is your, are you despaired by the things of this world and the brokenness of this world so that you're longing for Christ to come back and set all things right, make all things new? Friend, we got to live in that, that way. Where our lives today are fueled by what we believe about the future. And secondly, set our hope on Christ and we work within God's timing. There's a big challenge from Peter here in our text to wait rightly. Man, I don't like waiting. Do you like waiting? It's difficult. I get so frustrated when I have to wait at the doctor's office or in traffic, wherever it is that we have to wait. The reality is we're in a waiting period. The day ain't yet. We don't know when it's going to be. It's not yet. And Peter says we have to wait rightly. We've got to work within God's timing. We should not get lazy within this period of grace that God has given to us. Do not think just because judgment has not come that it is not coming. That is not a statement of God's indifference toward what's happening. It's a statement of his loving kindness to give more and more people the opportunity to hear the gospel before it's too late. To allow all those that Christ died for to respond in repentance and faith. We got work to do in preparing to meet him and... We have work to do in, in bringing others into the protection, right? Do we desire what God desires? That none should perish. 
God desires that none should perish. And that's why he's holding back his wrath, holding back his judgment. Do you desire that as well? If so, who are you telling about the future? Who are you telling about the certain judgment that is coming and the provision that God has made for that in Christ? Who are you saying, hey, listen, the pleasures of this world are gonna lead you to destruction. Don't follow that. You follow a greater pleasure that can only be found in Christ. You pursue him. You give your life to him so that when he returns, you're in the sheep, not the goats. You're the wheat, not the chaff. Do we have that desire that's driving us to tell others about the hope that we have in Jesus? Because we know what is to come. Several years ago, I remember one of my professors, who's, you know him now, he was president of IMB and some other places. His name is David Platt. We were at the seminary in New Orleans, and he was talking about some uh, evangelism he used to do in the French Quarter in New Orleans. Of course, if you've ever been to Jackson Square, you know that sometimes there are are people out there saying they can tell you your future, right? Palm readers, they have tarot cards. We'll tell you your future. Come pay us, sit down, we'll tell you your future. And so what David thought he would do is he would set up a table beside them and say, I will tell you your future for free. And so these people sat down. So I know my future is. Here's your future. Christ is coming. There's only two places you're gonna be categorized in when he returns. You're either gonna be in Christ or out of Christ. If you're in Christ, that day is gonna be a day of blessing. If you're out of Christ, that day is gonna be a day of despair. Would you be in Christ? Would you give your life to him? Would you respond in repentance and belief, recognizing your sin? and the just judgment that is awaiting you because of your sin. And would you see that Christ has taken that judgment upon himself? He's covered you with his blood so that you can be freed from the day of judgment and that day can be a day of blessing now when your groom comes to take you home as his bride. Friends, do we believe the testimony of the apostles? Do we believe the words of Christ that he will return? He will return to judge the unrighteous, save the righteous. Do we believe that? If so, how is it gonna affect you today? Let us, as the church, prepare for that day. He's coming soon. Will you be ready? I gotta tell you guys, I'm ready for that feast, right? A feast for the ages. A wedding party for the ages. I wanna be ready when he comes. I hope you do too. Would you bow your head? Spend some time before the Lord, asking him to help you know how to respond. First question I have to ask is this, are you in Christ or are you out of Christ? Have you set your hope entirely in Christ? Has there ever been a moment in your life when you have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord and believed 
in your heart that God raised him from the dead to be saved. If not, just a minute, we'll have some pastors and ministers here in the front. We'd love to speak with you more about Jesus, what he's done for you. After our service today, if you don't feel comfortable coming forward, we have a decision room by our welcome center. We'll have some pastors and members in there who will speak with you more. God does not desire you to be condemned forever. He's made a way for you in Christ to be saved. Will you take advantage of that today? For the rest of us who are in Christ, do our lives look like we believe that Jesus is coming again? Or have we gotten too consumed with the present and forgotten about the future? Let's make every day count for the kingdom. Set your hope on Christ. Wait rightly for the return of our King. Father, would you help us? Would you help us respond faithfully? Would you help us set our hearts on you? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.